To me, the question is how you define success. And success isn't just defined as what your bank account says. Success is defined by, am I learning? Am I growing? Am I making new relationships? Am I furthering my network? Am I accomplishing what I want to do? So to me, when you take on new challenges, just understand the definition of success is not solely by defined by a stock price. It's not solely defined by the check that you take home. Now, yes, that is an element that goes into it. But if you define success in the right way, I think people are more willing to embrace some of those challenges. What do successful businessmen and businesswomen have in common? What separates the best entrepreneurs, the best employees, the best family man, the best family woman from the rest? We dig in on this in this week's episode, showcasing 21 things you need to put in motion to be the best you that you can possibly be. Enjoy this week's episode. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Welcome to an episode of Kosher Money where we're going to talk about business, what it means to be successful in business. I'm excited about this. I'm the CEO of a small but growing marketing agency. So a lot of what is going to be discussed here today is relevant to my business and personal life. But I guess I would start off with, does that mean that someone who doesn't own a business should just hit pause right now? move on to doing other things. Is this going to be relevant to them, you think, Professor? You can call me laser, thank you. And I'm looking forward to the conversation as well. No, I I think this is going to be relevant to all individuals, individuals, whether they are business-oriented, whether they're focused on education, whether they're focused on nonprofit, as well as many of the lessons we discuss, I think, can be applied into the personal settings and to our families as well. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Okay, who is this professor? Who is Laser? Tell us a little bit of your backstory and why you're here today. Sure. So I think I'm here because one of my students suggested that you reach out to me. What I would say from my childhood, which will be relevant to the conversations, is I grew up with a uh, father who was a successful entrepreneur in the real estate world, as well as a mother and a sister who focused on social work. And I think the two elements, the social work coupled with the entrepreneurship really had an impression on who I am today. Uh, So I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, spent time in Los Angeles. Then I moved out to the East Coast, went to Yeshiva University, and spent time in accounting. Then I went to Harvard Business School, went to investment banking, and then I wound up moving more into the business world. Worked with Jay Walker from Priceline, then moved into the corporate world, worked in Medco Health, worked in the pharma space, worked in uh, healthcare services at CareCentrix, and now I am president of Enterprise Growth and Global Markets at Teladoc. So I've been involved in small companies, large companies. During that time, I'd also tell you, I teach at Yeshiva University and spend a lot of time with non-for-profits. Wow. Okay. I mean, have you hit every bucket goal you've had? You know, you seem relatively young, very accomplished. Is this it for you? Like, Like, this is where you want to be for the rest of your life? Or like, Someone as accomplished as this with a bio like that, do you still have aspirations for bigger and better? Yeah. So one of the things I would tell you is, and I I tell this to my students, is always have a growth mindset. Mm. Always think about what you can do more of, where you can grow, how you can develop. And also understand that we all have areas where we can 
embrace things that we are not experts on and take on new challenges. So for me, life is a journey mm. and it's all about taking on new challenges, doing more things, doing good. And it's not just in the business world. It's taking on more nonprofits and making a difference. I want to get into the inner workings of business, right? You've been exposed and still very involved and you teach a lot of the core lessons we're going to discuss today as it relates to business. What are some of the key lessons? Let's call them the top five that you've learned throughout your business career. Sure. So that, that's a hard one because I probably we probably could spend a lot of time on that one. But let's let's hit a couple of key ones. You know, the first one I would tell you is it's not about you. It's about understanding others. And that's really key. And whether it's understanding your customers, whether it's understanding your employees, whether it's understanding others that you're dealing with, if in the workforce, you're focused on yourself versus others, I believe you limit your success and you limit your company's success. So the first thing is, is always putting yourself in the other person's mindset, understanding how they define success understanding how they communicate. And when you understand those two elements, then you can push further and you can create success. Do you think people are not doing that naturally? That has to be acquired? I would tell you most people don't do it naturally. I, I would tell you most people think about how they react, how they, what they want mm -hmm. before they think about what other people do. Now, that doesn't mean they're being selfish. It's just the way that most people were trained. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to t hit the pause button and think about life from somebody else's perspective. But the more you can do that, the easier it is to relate, the easier it is to build a relationship, the easier it is to create a growing business from my perspective. I immediately see how that can apply to someone's personal life. It can apply, well. it can apply yeah. in many ways. I would also tell you, don't run away from the risk of failure. Learn from failures. I like to say that it's only a failure if it's the end of the journey, but if it's a continuation, it's just a speed bump to success. It's very easy to learn from a, from a sports analogy. Um, no one has a, a batting average that's 1,000. No one makes every basket they shoot. However, I think as Wayne Gretzky said, you will miss 100% of shots you don't take. So one of the things I would tell you is don't be afraid of failure. Embrace it. There are times where you will succeed and times where you won't. The key thing is, is when you don't, what do you learn from it? And how do you ensure that it doesn't happen again? And that same attitude of embracing risk, embracing failure is not just something that should guide you, but it should guide the way you deal with your employees, your colleagues as well. You should encourage them to take risk and understand that there are times where people will make mistakes. The questions you need to ask yourselves are, one, what did you do to mitigate and minimize the risk of failure? Two, what are you going to do to ensure that failure doesn't happen again? And three, and most importantly, what did you learn from that failure that will ensure your future success? Many of the successes that we see or many of the successful business people that we engage with have actually failed and they've learned from those failures and have created success. So I would tell you, embrace failure, don't run away from it. The pushback people will say when they hear something like that could be, okay, if the risk is low, but what if the risk is high, right? Let's paint the scenario where someone's 45, they're providing somewhat for their family, and then an opportunity arises where they can take a job that may or may not work out, but if it does not work out, they're left to be begging in the streets for money because they took that risk. 
Yeah, so there's no question. When I say embrace failure, that doesn't mean you run into a house that's on fire and you're just willing to be a risk taker. Embracing failure means you've thought through the situation. You can afford taking that risk. You understand the upside, you understand the downside. But for example, you can never learn to skate if you're always afraid of falling. You will fall. Now, what you want to do is make sure that the risks that you take, you can afford to fail. And different people will be in different situations. And so you need to look at the situation, understand with an honest objective. Sometimes the fear of failure is so great that it doesn't allow people to objectively evaluate whether they can take that risk or not. Mm -hmm. And so what I would tell you is, yes, you need to understand whether you can afford to take that risk. You need to understand, I think it's in uh, Amazon likes to say, take the risks that are two-way doors versus, versus, versus a one-way door, right? So if you take a risk and if something goes wrong, you can fix it. Now, there may be a cost to it, but you can manage it. That's one type of a risk. A risk that is a one-way door, a one-way street, where if you fail, you can't put the pieces back together, obviously that you need to consider. So if somebody is making a life decision and you have a family to support, you need to understand that the decisions you make have broad consequences. And that doesn't mean go embrace any risk, go embrace any failure, if that risk of failure has dire consequences. But truly understand, if you fail, does it make you a smarter person? Does it make you more marketable? Hmm. Will it put you into an industry that you didn't have industry experience in that you can then further your career? Some of my best experiences have come from failed experiences. I wouldn't call them failures, failed experiences where I didn't hit my definition of success. And so that's what I would say. Sometimes we also go into things thinking this is what success looks like. And then we might have failed at that vision, but ultimately we were successful in something else that we didn't realize. Like we do a poor job at recognizing what the opportunities are in a particular scenario. So once we jump in, we're like, hey, I thought this was my road to success, but I actually, because I'm in a new environment, I'm seeing new things. It's triggered me to think, hey, there are other opportunities here that I didn't really get to see from the place I was. Yeah. And so there's no question in my mind, having this growth mindset and always learning adds value. You develop new relationships, you expand your network, you learn an industry that you may not have had experience in. If you look at my career, I started off on the number side. I then went into entrepreneurial side of the business. I then went into healthcare that I had no experience in and primarily in deal making. And then I moved into running a business. From there, I went into the pharmaceutical space. From there, I then became a president and CEO of a healthcare services company, completely different. And now I'm responsible for revenue and growth of a large public company. So for me, it's all about learning. It's all about growing. And I understand that I take risks that I may fail because I'm moving into different areas. But to me, the question is how you define success. And success isn't just defined as what your bank account says. Success is defined by, am I learning? Am I growing? Am I making new relationships? Am I furthering my network? 
Am I accomplishing what I want to do? So to me, when you take on new challenges, just understand the definition of success is not solely by defined by a stock price. It's not solely defined by the check that you take home. Now, yes, that is an element that goes into it. But if you define success in the right way, I think people are more willing to embrace some of those challenges. As a professor, do you see a majority of children and young adults who are enamored with the wrong definition of success? Is that our nature? Is that just the way people think when they're young that to be successful means to have a lot of money in the bank account and then as people get older, they start to become wiser? Or no, you, you see a, a good amount of young adults that get it from an early age of what true success looks like. Um, I, I think a lot of it is how somebody's raised. Uh-huh. You know, I know we likely are going to talk about culture. I believe that a family has a culture as well. And if somebody's raised in a culture where success is defined by what you can afford, then that's the way the child will think and the child will react. But there's also no question that there's a lot of pressure on today's youth to be able to make ends meet and to be able to live a lifestyle that is expensive. And so there's a lot of pressure that goes with that as well. Some students have student debt, and so they have a burden that they're leaving college with. Some don't. I don't think there's a norm. I will tell you the ability to define success beyond the bank account is something that I think most students learn and appreciate as they go through life and go through life experiences that they realize it's not just all about the dollars and cents. A quick break from this week's episode to tell you about a charity organization created over 230 years ago, way back in 1778, when the Alta Rebbe founded Kolel Chabad. This nonprofit helps Israel's neediest, widows, orphans, the elderly, so many more, who rely on this tzedakah, this charity, for their daily bread and so much more. Every gift, large or small, means miracles for these poor and forgotten. So please open your wallets, open your hearts, and give any contribution you can. The money goes towards soup kitchens, food bans, financial support. Literally every dollar goes to a much-needed place. So visit kolochabad.org slash kosher money and give what you can. A $42 donation allows this organization to deliver hot, delicious dinners to six elderly people. So your money is really going to a great place. Thank you to everyone who has given so far. We cannot thank you enough. Kolochabad.org slash kosher money. And now back to our episode with Laser Kornwasser. You gave a TED Talk. What was that TED Talk about? How did you even get the opportunity to give a TED Talk? Let's walk through that. Yeah, so it was primarily about feedback. Part of my mind frame is always growing. And in order to grow, you have to embrace feedback. And feedback comes in many different ways and many different forms. And so that's what the TED Talk was. It was defining what your success is, viewing life as if you get into a car. And when you get into the car, what most people do today is you put your address into ways where you're going and you set where your destination is. Now, your the road may change, the different uh, pathways may change, but you know where you want to go. As you go through that journey, embracing feedback is one of the best ways to get there. Sometimes I do use the sports analogies, but when you have a batter who uh, finishes an at-bat and they come into the dugout, 
one of the first things they do is they look at the film to see what they did right or wrong. Mm. Very often in business or in your personal life, embracing feedback from the right individuals is key because that's how you will make yourself better. That's how you will grow. And so that's really what the TED Talk was about is how do you embrace feedback? Early on, I learned about embracing feedback. I spent some time in gymnastics and uh, was actually training with the assistant coach of the USA Gymnastics team. And one of the things I saw with these professional athletes is that while they were very competitive, they always embraced feedback. What could I do differently? What can I do better? And that attitude pushes you to think, how can I get better? We did a recording with Dave Ramsey recently, and one of the things he spoke about as it relates to success is... It's not about whether or not you went to college. That's just a small piece of everything. But those that have a PhD in life, they're constantly learning, innovating, taking the signals that are given to them, running after information, running after feedback. Those are the ones that tend to be more successful. Exactly. And I, there's, there's no question. And too often people are afraid to get the feedback. Because very often when you get the feedback, it, hurts. it means... You've done something wrong or you're not as good as you think. Mm. And it's really important for people to not be too caught up with themselves. But if you have the right definition of success, if your definition of success is to grow, to learn, to be better, feedback is great. Tell it to me now. I, I tell my students, and I'll tell this to anyone that's in the business world, is that very often people wait for feedback at the end of the year when they're about to get their bonus. Mm. Well, guess what? That's the worst time to get feedback. Your bonus is already set. You've already performed for the year. Spend some time halfway through the year. Go to somebody that you work with and say, how can I do a better job? So by the time you get to the end of the year, you can say, you know what? You gave me the following feedback and I corrected in the following ways. Now that's a much better conversation to happen. And it's the same thing whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're in the, in the corporate world. Get feedback from your customers. Don't wait till they leave you to get their feedback. Go get their feedback when they're happy. Ask them what they like. Ask them what they don't like. Talk to your employees. Find out what they like. Don't wait till they leave to get their feedback. Understand what's going on. And the same thing personally. Get feedback. I find with me the way I take feedback is how it's given. So if it's given in a comfortable environment, if it's given splendidly, if it's given where I feel it's constructive, the way I react, that is very different than when someone gives me feedback in the moment, perhaps. Um, emotions start running through me, and how I respond is, is very different. So accepting feedback is one thing, but then also how we give feedback to others is critical. 100%. One of the things I do in my class is we do a DISC evaluation, which helps people understand what their personalities are and how they like to be communicated to and how they tend to communicate. And what's really important is when you give feedback, understand the person that you're giving feedback to and when's the right time to do it. Hmm. That's one. Two is if the, you're giving feedback and the person knows you're giving the feedback because you care, it's a lot easier to receive it and if they respect the person giving feedback. Now, to be honest, I get feedback at work. I get feedback at home. I give feedback at home. I give feedback at work. How you give it is extremely important. Like you said, if somebody screams at you and says, you did the following things right or wrong, 
that's not constructive feedback. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes you need to wait till the following day and say, you know what? I was thinking through the presentation and the next time we talk to a client, I would improve the following two or three things. That may be the right time to do it than right after you leave the meeting. So understanding the other person and making sure that the feedback comes from a place of caring, right? I like feedback because I want to grow. Make sure the other person that is getting the feedback knows you're giving them the feedback because you want them to grow. And I will also tell you sometimes that one of the best ways to give feedback is to ask for feedback on yourself. So like if I go to an employee and I say, give me some feedback, what did I do right or wrong on that presentation? Very often it's then very natural to say, the person will then turn around and say, well, do you have anything for me? And then they've invited you in for that and it's a healthy conversation. Hmm. So understand the goal of feedback is to improve. The goal of feedback isn't to criticize. I would imagine what you just described is a critical trait for any manager and CEO. When someone walks over to you and says, hey, I'm a new CEO, or I've been a CEO for 20 years, what are some of the things that are critical to keep in mind? I want to be great. What would you give? What advice would you give them to be great? So for starters, I don't know that I'm the right person to give advice on being great because I don't think I'm great. Um, I've seen great leaders. Humility, that was, the, that was the first lesson right there. I've seen great leaders, and so I can tell you what I've seen. One is, I would tell you, is you're only as great as the results of your team. As strong of a person you may be and as successful as, as you are, you're only as good as the results that your team delivers. And that's really important for you to understand because if you appreciate that your team will drive your success, that will change the way you engage with your team. The second thing I would tell you is understand that it's easy to be a leader when things are going well. It's easy to be smart when things are going well. When the real estate market is going great, everyone's a great real estate investor. When the stock market is growing, going up and everyone's stock is up, it's easy to be a smart executive. Um, it's when things don't go well that really differentiates who's a good leader and who's not. And it's, it's really important that you understand that things won't go as planned. Things won't go the way you expect them to go. While you put in that address into ways, you need to understand that the way you get there is likely not going to be the way you planned, but it's how you deal with the unexpected speed bumps in the road. Do you get upset? Do you get angry when challenges happen? Or do you say, now's the time where we need to gather our team and be creative? I was part of a company where we lost our largest account. They represented a majority of our EBITDA. Mm. And over half of our workforce was dedicated to this one client. So now what do you do? Do you sit in the corner and cry? Do you get upset at everyone else? Or do you say, now's the time where we band together we find a way to expand our business, become more efficient, and use this as an opportunity to further us. And that's what we did. And so to me, when you see a good CEO, a good leader, most of the time what defines their strength is when they deal with the challenges, not when they deal with the successes. Is that what they call emotional intelligence to not react in the moment? Because when I have, I'll give you an example, we just sent a large proposal and we worked very hard on it, and we didn't get it. So I was talking with my ads chief, and I said, let's just take a few moments to be emotional about it internally. Meaning, 
we can create an action plan of what we can do in the future. But the fact that we didn't get it stinks, right? We put a lot of work into it. We created a really nice playbook for them and we didn't get the account. And that's, that's annoying. That's hurtful, whatever it is. Meaning I wanted to at least identify or cope with the emotional part of that, right? Because it's, it's there. If we went straight into the action of what we can do better in the future, that's I'm sure positive, but I think a lot of what we're talking about is emotional intelligence where you have to be in tune with your feelings. Yeah, feedback. I can give it in a way that is constructive, but if I'm not, I don't have my emotions in check, it's not going to do the job. One of the things that I believe that many individuals can grow on is furthering their emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And emotional intelligence is not just about emotions, how I feel, but it's understanding how what you do and what others do impact others and make sure you're attuned to what else is going on. Yes, it's, it's good if somebody's smart, but you need to be emotionally intelligent to be a successful leader. You need to be able to understand, you need to be able to cope, you need to be able to communicate, you need to be able to understand, and you need to be able to lead and motivate others. And the only way you can do that is if you have emotional intelligence, and that's extremely important. And what I would tell you is, there are some individuals who grow up with emotional intelligence. Like I said, I was fortunate to have a mother and a family that was very much into the EQ aspects. My wife is a therapist, so I'm very attuned to how others think, and it's extremely important. Um, but even if you didn't grow up with it, there are ways to learn it. Sometimes doing nonprofit activities and chesed activities is a great way to put yourself in somebody else's perspective. The idea of, have, of being thankful and appreciating allows you to understand other people. So there are things that you can do to raise your EQ. I would tell you most leaders, there are some exceptions, have a high EQ. When you think about leadership and being a good leader, and you said you're only as strong as your team and the results your team provides, that's the end result, right? So if you're a tough personality and you yourself are doing great work, but your team is failing, that's a reflection of you. How does that play into when you're hiring? Should you be hiring people that are smarter than you? They have more skills than you? Or no, the CEO has to know how everything in the business works. They need every skill, like the, the right CEO um, has to know how to do every job. That question gets posed a lot. Yeah, so to me, that's an easy one. Yeah. Um, and the right CEO and the right leader understands that they can't be an expert in everything. Uh -huh. And if they believe they're an expert in everything, they may be successful. They may do a successful deal here or there, but I would not call them a good leader or a good CEO. So to me, a good leader or a good CEO hires the best candidate. They understand where they should turn for advice on certain areas, and a good leader integrates that information and then is able to make a good business decision. When I went into healthcare, I didn't know anything about healthcare. Yet I was making decisions on businesses where healthcare was key mm. to the business. So I needed to know, who do I turn to for that healthcare advice? Who do I turn to for the regulatory advice? Who do I turn to for all the other elements that I may not be an expert in? And so I think a good leader understands 
they're not an expert in many things. And being able to embrace others is a skill that they shouldn't be afraid of. I think if somebody is worried about hiring somebody that's smarter, to me, then their definition of success probably needs to be adjusted. Do you think this misnomer, what you're calling a misnomer, is, is because when you have a smaller business and you have an employee who knows how to do one thing and the CEO does not, if that employee was to leave, the CEO would be vulnerable, right? Or the business would be vulnerable, which does make sense and it's true, but it's impossible to grow. I guess I'm answering my own question here, but it's impossible to grow if you don't hire people that have skill sets beyond yours, even though it might lead to some vulnerability. Yeah, and so I like to say people have to make a decision whether they want to eat well or sleep well. Mm. And if you want to sleep well, you go with steady, slow, which is fine. That's great for some people. Others want to eat well. And when I say eat well, they're willing to take on more risk, more challenges. And yes, sometimes you hire somebody. And by the way, it's not necessarily smart. Let's say you hire somebody who's a better salesperson. So you ask yourself, do I want the best salesperson to grow my business or do I not want to do that? Because if that person were to leave, then the damage it would do to my business. To me, what you should think about is, how do I grow my business? But then what do I do to make sure that employee stays engaged? What do I do to make sure that they're happy where they are? Mm. Now, yes, that may mean you need to pay them more. That may mean you need to give them equity. You need to make them feel like a partner. So to me, living your life worrying about the fear that something may happen is probably not the right way to go. Now, you don't want to hire somebody who on their resume every year goes from one job to the other. You want to hire somebody who, if you think, you can put them in a situation where they grow and they're appreciated and compensated, that they will stay and help grow your business. You want to get that type of personality. And the other side is you also want to make sure that if you have key areas, you want to make sure that you have a backup plan. Let's look at technology. If you have one person who knows how to run the technology in your business and they were sick, what are you going to do? It's no different than somebody leaving. I like to say, somebody wins the lottery. What are you going to do? So for some key areas, you need to make sure you have a backup plan. And a backup plan doesn't necessarily mean you need to have a second employee. You need to think about, is there a place where you can outsource in the short term? Or what do you do? But to me, if your desire, it depends how you're defining success. If your success is to grow, then you should hire the team that will allow you to grow with you know, the best chances of success. And now time for a quick recess. Not a break, just a recess. From this week's episode, Shmuel Shaiwitz of Approved Funding, CEO and President. Nailed it. Uh, licensed mortgage banker. We're talking today about risky real estate investments. I've seen ads. Oh, a multi-complex building. We're looking for $900 million and, you know, an ad in a magazine and... I shiver because I'm nervous that people are not going to do their due diligence. They've worked hard to make money and save money. And, oh, the buy-in is only $25,000. And you can make 70%, 700%. It sounds all great. And maybe there are success stories out there. But does it really pan out the way they claim it to? It's a great question. And this is a very age-old problem, I would say, in the uh, real estate industry, where people sometimes see opportunities that are too good to be true, 
And more often than not, they don't do their due diligence. They don't even know how to do the due diligence. So they're being referred by a friend. Somebody tells them about something that looks very enticing. And maybe 25,000, 50,000, 100,000 I've seen doesn't look as hurtful and as painful. So they go in there and they figure, well, if I'm one of 50, 60 people or one of five or one of 10, then maybe somebody else did their due diligence. So I'm the minority. I, I'm just going to go with the clow. I'm going to go with the group over here. And I, I don't know that that's the appropriate way for somebody who doesn't have the sophistication to really look at. And I think almost any, and if they don't, then you should be weary. But I think any of these opportunity people will send you a prospectus. They'll send you something, a brochure, some a little bit more fancy than others. So I think you can get the paperwork. But again, most people don't know what they're looking at. So even if you do look at it, are you speaking to the principals? Do you know who the principals are? Do you know their track record? Aside from a simple Google search, which could tell you a lot, but that, that shouldn't even be enough. And especially now that we're going to start seeing changes in the real estate industry, not only because rates are so high, home prices are going to start to normalize, I'm going to call it, and it's going to be challenging for certain people who purchased, certain people who purchased with some kind of a spec attitude of we're going to do X, Y, and Z for a value add, and it may not pan out. And then they refinance. The plan is to invest. We're going to do X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. and then we're going to refinance, pull mm -hmm. some money out, and you're safe. You'll be out in a year or two. Mm -hmm. And those don't always work out as planned. I can tell you from personal experience in 2006, 7, and 8, I was involved in several deals, most of which- As an investor? As or an as investor. A, okay. As an investor, most of which did not pan out. Some of them did. And the ones that did, it took a long time to uh, really- right the, the ship after the market turned. Nobody knows where the market's going to go. Nobody's saying that uh, because the market's going to go, you shouldn't invest. Or um, if, if you're confident that the market's going to stay stable and real estate is the best investment of all time, which is, it's a great investment. But due diligence is required. And, and really, your own discretion would not be enough to be able to get people into these multi-million dollar deals that are well above their pay grade. What I would say, and what I do suggest is, people should look into buying investment real estate on their own. It's a lot easier than people think. People are getting into single family, multifamily homes throughout, throughout the US. There's still opportunities. And it's easy to just look at the numbers and, and literally pencil on, a, on, on the back of a napkin, map it out, figure it out, and sometimes you don't have to make the big returns that the big boys need to make or the big girls need to make. You can make a simple return, be satisfied with it, and that could be your investment portfolio. I actually spoke with a woman who she now has a portfolio of real estate of about 40 homes. And she was saying how she regrets that she would have done things differently. I was waiting to hear what somebody with 40 homes that have built up a nice portfolio, what were her regrets? So she had two regrets. She is six, almost 70 years old, 40 homes. So it sounds like, you know, she put in her time and she's been in the market for a long time. Interestingly, she only started to buy real estate over the last 10 years. So it's 40 investment properties in the last 10 years. So really almost anybody can do it. She had no previous experience before it. 
And one of her regrets were that she didn't speak with a real estate financial professional who can help her just strategize. A lot of the properties that she bought in the beginning, most of the properties she said, in fact, she bought all cash and she got investors and she got partners and she, she now has partners on some homes that she could have avoided by getting a mortgage from the bank. And a lot of people say, well, I don't want the debt. I don't want the mortgage. But you probably don't want a partner. You probably want a mortgage more than you would want a partner. And a mortgage is just somebody that, you know, um, it, it's, it's a bill to pay. As long as the property can cash flow, then you're not locked into what could be a very uncomfortable situation, even if the property is performing. Who decides when to sell? Who decides what to do? Improvements, upgrades. So sometimes being your own boss in these types of real estate opportunities and just borrowing, again, sensibly. Nobody's saying people should borrow recklessly or, or irresponsibly, but leverage is key in all real estate. And leverage comes down to, are you going to leverage what somebody, your friend told you, you know, at the, at the store about an investment opportunity, or are you going to go and do your own research and, and make your money count properly? So it's all about who you know and what you know and putting in the time to spend the time to, to really do the research. Know before you go. That's, that's the theme here. Thank you, Schmoll. If you want to pick Schmoll's brain, go to approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. No question is a dumb question. Hit them up any time of the day or night. They're there for you. And now back to this week's episode. You've been involved in the corporate world as a from Jew, wearing a kippah. You're in the thick of it. Have you had positive, negative experiences? Was it different? A couple of decades ago, there are a lot of people listening that are in the corporate world, and I think wearing a yarmulke in the workplace has been a growing positive trend that people are proud of their heritage and their faith. What have your experiences been, and have those experiences changed for the better or worse over the years? So I've had great experiences, and unfortunately, I've had some negative ones as well. I will tell you that wearing a yarmulke and being outwardly religious as part of who I am is a responsibility. Everything you do likely gets judged in a different way than others. And you either make a Kiddush Hashem or you make a Chel Hashem. Um, and what's extremely, extremely important is that you understand that religion can never be used as an excuse. Religion is who you are. Now, by definition, when I was in investment banking, if something needed to be done by Monday morning, the fact that I had to leave early on Friday, that meant sometimes on Saturday night, right after Avdallah, I would come into work and get it done. To me, religion is not an excuse. It just means you may have to do things a little bit differently to get to the same outcome. And as long as people see that you're sincere and that you're respectful of others, people will respect you as well. And that's extremely important. When I was in business school, I had a professor by the name of Clayton Christensen. And we always used to have some interesting conversations because he was a religious Mormon. And he pulled me aside on our last day of class and he said, Laser, whatever you do in order to stay a successful Orthodox Jew, just remember you will draw the line in the sand. Wherever you draw it, wherever you want it to be, the second you cross over that line, you can never go back to it. And I think that's really important is you need to be consistent. So you will define how you want to practice your religion in the workplace. You need to be consistent. You need to be respectful. And it can't be an excuse 
to get to what needs to get done. And there are ways to do that, and you don't have to compromise. I believe it's easier to do it now than it was 25, 30 years ago. I think people are more understanding. But to me, it's, it's usually been a very positive experience. And, you know, I wouldn't change that. And that's what I would say. But yes, I've had negative experiences as well. Without saying names or identifying details, what has a negative experience been? And what did you or your employees slash employer coworkers learn from it? And maybe this is years ago. So. No, so some of it is years ago. Some of it was unfortunately not too far off. When I was looking for a job in investment banking, I did not get a job at one of the large investment banks because of Shomer Shabbos, because I observed the Sabbath. Now, fortunately, I was able to get a job at another large investment bank, and the people that I worked with were great about it. I had an experience not too long ago where I was a very senior executive at a large company. The CEO said to me, uh, we were in the middle of a very important meeting, and I told the CEO I needed to leave at a certain time to get home for Sabbath, for Shabbos. And he said, no, you can leave an hour later. And I said, well, it's an hour away from home. I need to get ready to go to synagogue, to go to Shul. And he turned to me and he says, well, I've calculated on ways. And I've gone to this website called Chabad.com. And that's what he said, Chabad, he was referring to. And he said, this is your start time and this will get you home in time. And I said, listen, this is who I am. This is when I'm leaving. And if you don't want me to come back on Monday, just let me know. And the fact that he would trust me as one of his most senior executives, but not allow me to say when I needed to go home, knowing that I've never used it as an excuse, was a really bad experience. On the other hand, the current CFO that I work with, if I'm on a conversation with her on Friday, she goes, Laser, isn't it close to Sabbath? Don't you need to go now? So I've had people that have respected, mm. and I've had people that haven't, and that's what I would say. How did he respond to your Monday morning, I won't show up? I was there on Monday and I didn't hear anything about it. But the key thing is, you need to decide where you draw the line and then you just need to be consistent with it. And in the end, things work out. You're involved as a volunteer at the highest levels of Orthodox Union. And for those that don't know the OU, um, it's the largest religious Jewish organization in the US. How do you think about the balance between your responsibility as an Orthodox Jew to, to earn a living, provide for your family, support them, but also find time to volunteer, to learn, to do those what they call extracurricular activities that are probably not extra, they're, they're critical to life. Yeah, so, and I, I think this applies to whether you're Orthodox or non-Orthodox, is a mind frame of always be giving. And my view is when you give, you get back so much more. Um, The students that I spend time with after class and guide them and mentor them, the individuals that I help guide to further their institutions makes me a better person, but it also, as far as my definition of happiness, it makes me happy as well. So for me, being involved in these extracurricular activities is something that I get a tremendous amount of enjoyment on. Now, I think it's really important that you need to balance one of your biggest resources is your time. And so I do believe that different people have different ways of giving. Some people can write a check. Some people can spend the time and mentor somebody. Somebody can take somebody's resume and give it to somebody in their network and help them out. And other people can roll up their sleeves and get involved and be actively involved in organizations. And find something that you're passionate about and spend some time doing that. You know, it's one of the things that I find in this world, this remote world, 
is creating a culture. One of the things that helps create company culture is when you do other things beyond just work. So when you do nonprofit activities together, when you do other things that are outside of work, where people see this person has a human element to them that you can relate to, it's a lot easier to build a relationship that people trust. Talking about remote work and how in 2023 the world is very much remote, especially as opposed to just a few years ago, how has that changed the relationships that people are having? You know, there's no water cooler to spend time around. They're not spontaneously bumping in in the hallway. Is that necessary to create positive company culture? Is that just an extra that's not super necessary and you cut down on travel time and people have more time to work? Is it business dependent? How do you look at remote as it relates to positive, negative, neutral? So, so to me, the ability to communicate remotely is a tremendous opportunity. There are communications that are able to happen that wouldn't have happened. In some ways, it's far more efficient and it creates increased employee satisfaction if done the right way. Now, taking that into account also means you need to recognize that you're missing out on a key element that is necessary within a company, and that is the relationships. Those relationships get built by having those conversations that aren't your typical, okay, this is what's going on with this deal, but it's having a relationship knowing that when things go wrong, is this person gonna be in the trenches with me to make sure we can get to success? So the benefits of remote is that you can have more efficient workforce. You can hire anywhere. You're not limited to a geography. Mm -hmm. And then you can also have a good employee satisfaction because they're enjoying what they're doing when they're at work. But the culture side is extremely, extremely important. And that's part of the relationship that you need to build. So what I would say is there's great aspects to being remote and you should take advantage of those. But it also means instead of investing in real estate and an office or whatever you're doing, you need to invest in building a community, a relationship between your employees so that they can find ways, creative ways to get to success. So that's something that's I think is extremely important. And I would tell you for people starting off in the workforce, mm. I really believe the best jobs for most people starting off in the workforce, if they wanna expand their network, should try to find companies that at least have partial on-site work because they're the ones, I, I've got a network, right? My network grows and yes, that's a nice thing. But for somebody who's just starting off in the workforce where they don't have that network and that network is crucial, then it's extremely important that they have find a way to build that. Otherwise, business becomes too transactional. And now for some businesses, that's okay. But as an employee, chances are you're looking for more than just that transactional nature. We'll be right back to our episode with Laser Cornwasser, our newest sponsor, Infinity Land Services. If you're looking for a title without the story, a title for your real estate transaction without drama, then you need Infinity Land Services. Check them out, ilstitle.com. Pause me if you want. Visit ilstitle.com, take a look at their brand new website, read all about them, email them, contact them, tell them your friends at Kosher Money sent you, really cool people. They know the space. I've spoken to them quite a bit so far. 
we might actually be doing an episode where we're going to feature Mark at ILS title. He has a lot of insights on what he's seen out there. I don't want to give too much away, but yes, ILSTitle.com. Check them out. Tell them your friends at Kosher Money sent you. And now back to this week's episode. It's very interesting. And I want to do a whole episode. We had someone named Mitchell Eisenberger on, and he's very passionate about networking. And I would imagine networking has changed over the decades, especially with LinkedIn. And I find that people think networking on LinkedIn is the same as meeting someone in person and having that real relationship versus a digital relationship. How do you view networking as it relates to business success? If someone who's starting out in a business and is not naturally a good networker, they're somewhat introverted, are they destined for failure? Do they have to be more creative? Is it like any trait where they have to learn it? Can it be learned? When you think about networking in a business, what comes to mind? I happen to be an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. Mm -hmm. But to me, networking and relationships are core. It just means the way you go about creating your network and establishing relationships may be a different way. So for me, the way I make sure to establish my network and, and create relationships is I try to base it off of a common interest or a solving a problem, helping somebody solve a problem or vice versa, as opposed to just going to a bar and drinking and making friends that way. Now, some people have that skill where they can be social and go to a social gathering and do that. Others find other ways. So for me, just because you're an introvert doesn't mean you can't be successful at networking and building relationships. The other thing you need to do is understand that networking, in my mind, is about having the shade when you need the tree. And you, you can't say, well, I'm gonna focus on my work now, I'm not gonna focus on building my network, because when you need shade, planting the tree is not gonna get you the shade when you need it. Mm. And so it's all about establishing relationships. I think every job I've had have come through relationships as opposed to any other manner. So to me, understanding that building a network means you need to go out and help people, not just go out and ask people for things. So it's a, a network is a relationship where you give, not just take. Every end of the year, I personally write about 500 holiday cards, New Year's cards. You can outsource that these days. You can outsource it. And many people send nice New Year's cards where they have pictures of their families. Right. I actually spend the time uh -huh. and I write on the back of every card, uh -huh. two or three sentences. And it's my way of letting the person know I'm thinking about them. The same thing I'll do around the holiday times, whether it's Passover, when it's others. The other thing I will do is if I find out that there is a hurricane in Texas or Miami, Florida, wherever that may be, I will go through my contacts and reach out to everyone in that area to say, how are you doing? Is there anything I can do? And by the way, that's not just with my contacts. I will do that with employees in my company as well. Mm. It's an opportunity for you to let people know you think about them, you care about them, and that's the way you build a network and a relationship and also offering help. I can't tell you how many times recently a friend of mine was a CEO of a public company and he lost his job. And very often when that happens, people run away because, oh, they're not in an important position. That's the time where you as a friend step forward and say, how can I help you? I'm thinking about you. And that's what it means to have a good network and build successful relationships. So that's a real investment in time, right? You're, you're not just networking, you're being proactive and you're spending a considerable amount of time doing this. 
how much time in the course of a week or a month or over the year are you spending on active networking? I don't know. I've never thought about it that way. Right. To me, most of my relationships and my, my networking are when I see opportunities, when I think about somebody, mm-hmm. I reach out to them. When something happens, I reach out to them. And so it's hard to tell. I couldn't necessarily... Now, is it something that's always in my mind? Yeah, I'm always thinking about how can I help people in my network? Do I know people who are going through a hard situation? They would value advice. They would value an introduction. I am always thinking about that. The reason I ask this, and this could be the wrong question from a selfish perspective, because you're investing the time. So is it completely selfless or ultimately you're looking for a return on that investment? Are you networking for just the sake of being altruistic and selfless? Or ultimately, the reason you're networking is because you want to see some sort of return on that, right? You're keeping your network alive. They know you exist. They know you care, etc. So of those 500 cards you're sending out, what are the fruits of that labor the following year after you send out those cards? What Are people responding to the cards? Yeah, so what I would tell you is you shouldn't be networking from a perspective of it's all about me and what am I going to get out of it? To me, a network is building relationships. It's no different than when you go to shul or synagogue and you have friends or if you have people on your block. Relationships are part of who you are. It's a give and take relationship. If you constantly are looking at it as a mind frame of, I'm doing this so that I can get something back, chances are it's a very short-term relationship. If I feel like somebody is only communicating with me because I know they want a job, chances are that communication doesn't last long. To me, it's all about having relationships, and it's a give and take. Sometimes you'll give, sometimes you'll take, but you invest in it because you'd always rather be on the giving end than on the taking end. Love that. What's a question I didn't ask that you think, as it relates to business, I should ask, and something you can share now that we have you here? What you know it could be closing remarks? The one thing that I, we didn't talk about is as you go through your career, especially if you're in the corporate world, less in the entrepreneurial world, always act as if you are one step above where you currently are, or at least aiming to do that without waiting to be given a raise or an increase. And for me, it's, it was always about delivering. And if you deliver, good things would come. I think too often in today's world, people expect to get recognized before they get the responsibility. And people don't step into the position of taking on the responsibility unless they get rewarded. Mm. I've been blessed to have some very great CEOs who have given me the responsibility And when I've delivered, I've gotten the reward. And so one of the things I would just say is, if you have a growth mindset, being able to step in and take on responsibility, grab that opportunity. Good things will come. Sometimes it'll be from a financial perspective. Sometimes it'll be just broadening your knowledge and new business opportunities would come from it. And so that's what I would tell you. So it's thinking about how you can grow. The last thing I would just stress is how we started off. It's not about you. It's thinking about other people And if you can think about other perspectives, success will come to you as well. It's episodes like this that really talk to people because it goes into the inner fibers of their being, right? This is not just, hey, where should I invest my money? We're talking here about personality traits and and growing and feedback. And this is, these are like the intimate parts of people's lives that they don't necessarily think about. So I would imagine you will be fielding quite a few emails. 
Hope it's not too many. Um, but if you do have a, a question or a comment uh, for Professor Laser Cornwasser, feel free. Thank you so much. Happy to. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, you should continue to educate because I, I think um, what you're doing is extremely needed. Um, you are providing guidance to people that need the information, that want the information. So kudos to you and your entire team. Amazing. Um, so we're going to link to the TED Talk in the show notes. The audio podcast don't always give us enough uh, room for the the notes so head over to youtube and you'll find all the links there any books that you've written yet or no. not yet is no. that on the I'll horizon read, i'll read others and I, <laughs> there, by the way if there's one article yeah. i would tell all of your uh all of your watchers and listeners to to read is measuring your life by clayton christensen and it really is something that i think everyone should read not just once but once a year uh, and the, the, the premise is, is the same way you have a business strategy, mm -hmm. you should have a life strategy. And it helps you understand what success means and how you should be guiding your life. What you outsource, what you don't. In business, we decide what activities do I want to outsource and what don't I. In our personal world, we make the same decision. What are the activities in the household that I'm going to outsource or I'm not going to? Um, and what are the relationships we should spend time investing? So I would tell everyone... Um, Measuring Your Life by Clayton Christensen is something that I think is a great read. There's a late Foodtown CEO who named Dan Katz of Less Memory. He created a handbook for his family. So the same way businesses have handbooks, you know, this is, you know, and obviously that's to an extreme, but this idea that we're very um, careful to look at the numbers as it, as it relates to our business, but when it comes to family, we're a little bit more all over the place and don't necessarily have that business-like structure. I'm not saying everyone should create a handbook, but... And by the way, idea. it's not just having a st it's structure, but it's deciding what's important, right? If the culture that you want to build in your house is one that has religious priorities, that's part of your culture. Mm -hmm. If educating your kids is important, then decide what are the elements you're going to outsource, what aren't you? If raising your kids is your greatest investment, how much of that of that greatest investment do you want others to do versus is it a priority for you to do? It's all part of that decision on where, you know, your, bit, your, your most successful business, your most successful investment, your most successful allocation of your resources really is your family. That's what people are going to know you at for generations to come. So anyways, it was a pleasure talking Thank to you, you. And I'm happy to uh, help anyone out there. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening to our newest episode of Kosher Money. Thank you to our friends at Living Smarter Jewish. If you need financial resources, if you need assistance, if you're in debt, if you need a mentor, you need a coach, look them up. LivingSmarterJewish.org. Zevi Wallman and his team are there to help you. The project of the OU, and we could not be more thankful to partnering with the fine crew at Living Smarter Jewish. Also, our episodes are now being written up in Mishpacha Magazine. So, pick up a Mishpacha Magazine, check out which episode is covered. It's going to have bonus, exclusive content with the guests featured in our episodes. Also, visit mishpacha.com. You'll see bonus video content there and so much more. We could not be more excited about that collaboration. So, Living L'chaim, who are they? What do they do? They have a network of shows to help 
Orthodox Jews across the world and pretty much anyone who's looking for more impactful entertainment. So they have shows such as Inspiration for the Nation, Spirit of the Song, That's an Issue, which is a mental health podcast, so much more. Check it out. You can visit the YouTube page. Make sure you subscribe, like, follow, do everything you can. Send it to your grandmother. Send it to your third cousin. Tell everyone about Living L'Chaim, Kosher Money, and all the shows featured on this growing network. Thank you to our sponsors, Approved Funding, Mortgage Kings, Kolo Chabad, the longest Jewish organization in existence, and our newest sponsor, Infinity Land Services, title without the story. Thank you so much for listening. Really, 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 really appreciate our audience. We got more coming your way. Until next time, keep your money kosher. Enjoy. Living L'chaim.